Father, would you prepare our hearts and minds in these moments to receive your word? Would you give us ears to hear it? Refresh us and convict us and comfort us with it. As always, attend to me and keep me in touch and in tune with you as I do this work to which you've called me. For Christ's sake and for the sake of his church, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the words we've heard tonight from chapters 49 and 50 are the final words of the book of Genesis. We started our study the second week of January of this year, and we are now coming to its conclusion. But these are also the final words of Jacob and Joseph. But while they're the final words of Genesis and the final words of Jacob and Joseph, they are not the final word on, in regard to those to whom they are speaking and in regard to the topics that are being addressed. As a matter of fact, these, are, these final words actually set up the next book, which of course we know is Exodus, but they also set up the rest of Scripture, the Scripture as a whole, and the redemptive history that it chronicles. Now, please know that we're not going to be able to, to do a deep dive into both chapters. We're not going to be able to cover everything that we've just read. And there's a good chance we're not going to plumb the depths on any particular portion or topic that you uh, would probably like. But the outline we're going to follow is going to be very simple and pretty obvious. We're going to look at the last words of Jacob, and we're going to look at the last words of Joseph. The last words of Jacob include prophecies that he shared, and professions that he made, and the last words of Joseph include purposes he identified and promises he was clinging to. So let's begin first with the words of Jacob. And as I mentioned, they are words of prophecy, prophecy regarding his sons in verses 1 to 28 that I just read. And you notice, I'm sure, that the prophecies took the form of expressions of favor either from Jacob or from God or from both, and they described blessings, while others included expressions of displeasure and described consequences. But regardless, they all have a couple of things in common. First, they all were pronouncements that looked ahead. They, they looked at, uh, Jacob was looking at his sons, and he was looking at their character, and he was expressing what their future was going to hold. In other words, he was looking at their character and, and then was speaking about what blessings or benefits uh, they might reap or consequences they might suffer. And the second thing that they had in common was all, that the, all the pronouncements would not come to pass in their lifetimes. They were all going to come to pass some 400 plus years later when they entered the land of Canaan. Now, again, because we have so much ground to cover, I'm not going to look at each and every one of these individual prophecies. I want to look at three in particular. I want to look at Reuben's in verses 3 and 4, and Levi's and Simeon's in verses 5 and 7, and Judah's in verses 8 to 12. Uh, first, Reuben, he was the firstborn, and the firstborn, as the firstborn, he had power and, and, and position and preeminence. But as we all know, he had thrown all of that away. He had forfeited all that through his sexual sin that we read about it back in chapter 35. Jacob here says that he was unstable as water, which meant the principles that he was guided by um, 
were his, well, his principles were, were affected by his external surroundings rather than his internal resolve. And his choices were adversely affected by his own desires. And notice, Jacob is exacerbated with him. He's exacerbated with him, and he, and he turns back to all the brothers that are present, and he says, he went up to my couch. It's been many years, and he still can't get his head around it, this sin that Reuben had committed. Despite the fact that he had everything going for him, despite the fact that Reuben had been set up to succeed, he failed to lead. He failed to do what he knew what was right. His character had proved to be his downfall. He had been affected just as water is affected by the heat, the cold, and the wind. And he squandered his potential. And as a result, there would not be future leaders coming from his tribe. In verses 5 to 7... Jacob prophesies over Simeon and Levi. They were the next oldest in line, but they, of course, we know, uh, had forfeited their right to step into the void that Reuben had left open because of their own grievous sin. You remember that they had um, deceived the men of Shechem. They had uh, misused the covenant sign, and then they vengefully massacred them. And as a result, Jacob said, I can't even keep company with you. I can't keep company with you, and you and your tribes will be scattered. Simeon's tribe was absorbed into Judah, and of course, Levi's, or the Levites would not receive any land of their own when it was divided out. And now when we come to Judah in verses 8 to 12, we expect him to be the next in line for a rebuke. Right? Because he had sinned just as his brothers had sinned. He had spearheaded the plan for Joseph to be sold into slavery. But he doesn't receive the rebuke. He receives a blessing of all blessings. He would not only take the vacated seat of the leader of the family and rule over the family, but Jacob said that he would his tribe would rule over their enemies. He said they would exude strength and valor, that they would quietly and confidently conquer and rule over all their enemies with ease. They would flourish and prosper abundantly, above and beyond what they could ask or imagine. They would be preeminent. They would be a royal line. And of course, we know Jacob's prophecy was looking well beyond Canaan well beyond what would happen in 400 years. It was looking to the day that when the Messiah, the Lord Christ, the Lion of Judah, the true heir of the throne would take his rightful seat and receive all that he is due as King of kings and Lord of lords. The scepter would remain with Judah until the day of salvation was achieved and the superabundance of blessings 
would be experienced by the people of God as citizens of the kingdom. So what had set Judah apart from the other three? Again, he was just as much of a sinner. Well, of course, we know it was the electing grace of God. And of course, we also know, we saw in chapter 38, that that electing grace of God had led Judah to repentance. And his repentance produced fruit of an observable inward change. He who had been self-serving and thinking only of himself was now self-sacrificing and thinking about others. Richard Phillips puts it this way, Judah wasn't any less a sinner than Reuben, Simeon, or Levi. The difference that allowed Judah to receive true blessings from Jacob was that Judah had condemned his own sin and sought its only remedy in the atoning mercy of the Lord. The difference with Judah was his repentance for his sins, the strength of his faith, and the reality of his changed life. And so we need to pause and ask ourselves, what, what do we learn simply from these three prophecies? And I want, to, I want us to think about two quickly. First, we should never underestimate the importance of character, ever. The world may tell us that the positions we fill and, and the possessions that we acquire and the power that we hold and the per- persuasiveness that we wield and the prestige that we earn all define us. And it determines, they, all those things determine how successful we are. And then the world also tells us at the same time that character doesn't matter. And everybody should mind their own business because what we do in private doesn't affect what we do in public. And brothers and sisters, the Bible has a significantly different perspective. We're told in Scripture, it speaks of us dwelling upon things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure and lovely and commendable, things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. It also speaks of exhibiting love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And it speaks of those who are poor in spirit those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers as those who are blessed. Character matters. And secondly, we should never underestimate the far-reaching effects of sin, ever. Yes, We can be forgiven of our sins and set free from our bondage in Christ. And we have been in Christ. But sin still can carry a significant, or can carry significant consequences. Sin carries significant consequences, especially when we don't repent, when we need to repent, and don't forgive when we need to forgive. It can be detrimental to us spiritually emotionally and psychologically and even physically. It can damage relationships. It can 
destroy families, and it can disrupt the unity of the church. And these effects are not only short-term, but they can be long-term as well. Sin, like character, matters. Well, Jacob only got halfway through his prophecies when it appears, I mean, something happened and it appears that It appears as though he began lamenting everything that he had been saying and everything that was ahead. Many of the prophecies there with with Reubens and and Levi's and Simeon's, and then he had just finished Dan's. And in verse 18, it's almost as if he may have even been lamenting his role, what he had done as parents do. What have I done? And we see the first of three professions. In verse 18, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He knew salvation and restoration and change and new direction were all something that only the Lord could bring about. He knew he could not trust in himself. He knew he could not trust in his sons. He could only trust in the Lord. And he was making that profession loud and clear. Then we look down in verses 24 and 25 in the midst of Joseph's prophecy. In the the midst of that prophecy, he calls out to the Lord and calls the Lord, Mighty One of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, and the Almighty. And again, in doing so, he professes that the Lord was powerful and loving and faithful and that he was the source of his help and his blessings, and not only Joseph's help and blessings, but his own help and blessings. And this is a, this is a big change in Jacob, because remember in chapter 47, when he was talking to Pharaoh and he was looking back, all he could think about was, was sorrow and trouble. Now, here, at the end of his life, he was able to look back and he was able to admit that he had been blessed more than his father and his grandfather before him. And he was calling out. His desire was for Joseph to receive even more blessings than he had had received and to be helped even more than he had been helped. And then down in verses 29 to 32, having concluded the prophecies, Jacob commanded all the sons to do what he had already asked Joseph to do and got Joseph to swear that he would do back in chapter 47, which was to bury him in Machpelah in Canaan. He wanted them to all be a part of this trip to Canaan. He wanted them all to be there for his burial. Why? Because he wanted them to have a visual reminder of where his hope was even in death. It would be a reminder that he was no longer sojourning. He was a resident. He was a resident who was at home in the presence of God and his people. And he wanted them to live with and in that same hope. Again, in the words of Richard Phillips, what a great end to a life that had been marred by many sins and limping wrong turns in the path of faith. 
Well, Moses tells us in verse 33 that Jacob died. And he died peacefully. And Joseph was able to close his eyes. And Joseph and his family immediately began to mourn. And not only did they mourn, but the, the, nation of Israel, the, the nation of Egypt mourned along with them, speaking to Joseph's prominence in the kingdom. And they mourned because death was an enemy. And even though for us today death is a defeated enemy, it is an enemy nonetheless. And it's consequence, it's a consequence of the fall. And it shouldn't be denied. But it also shouldn't be accepted as natural and as okay either. Death is terrible. Death is sad. And we should grieve and mourn when those we love are overcome by it. And we should grieve with those who grieve. And in the midst of their mourning, the family call a few physicians together to embalm the body. Not to embalm them um, like the Egyptians did for the afterlife, but to make him ready for the long trip. And when the days of weeping were over, um, Joseph asks Pharaoh, can I, can I fulfill this promise that I made to my dad? And can we go and take him and bury him in Canaan? And Pharaoh says, sure, and then sent a, sent a very large group to go with him. He actually says, go up. And when they arrive there, they mourn another seven days. And it had to be a pretty significant spectacle with the number of people and the type of mourning that was going on because it says the Canaanites, Moses said the Canaanites gave the place a name. That only happens when something significant takes place. So the procession and the mourning was a testimony to the, again, to the powerful, loving, faithful God in whom Jacob had professed and his hope and trust. But it was even more than that. Jacob had, had been delivered ultimately from his bondage to sin and, and from the fallen world, and he had been ushered into eternal life. And when we think about Pharaoh's words and when we think about the journey, if you go back, and I encourage you to do this, to go back and, and check out the route that they took, and the fact that the Egyptians were involved, we know it was also a preview of the larger exodus to come. Before we move on, I want to ask a few questions. What type of legacy are we as a church leaving our children of our church? Are we setting them up for spiritual success? Are we honest about the dangers and the consequences of sin as well as the hope that is theirs in the gospel? Are we being an example of of passing on the importance of godly character and repentance and forgiveness? Are we communicating that, 
that our hope and trust is not in ourselves and it's not in them, but it's in the Lord Jesus alone. It's He alone that holds their salvation in His hands. Are we keeping the promises? Are, we keep, are the promises that we're, that we're keeping, are we clinging to them? Are we remaining? Are we keeping those promises that we're keeping in front of them, that we're clinging to in front of them? And then are we teaching them and praying them toward those promises, keeping those promises, embracing those promises themselves? Are we reminding them that God is powerful and loving and faithful and the source of their help and blessings? And are we looking forward to that day and do they see us looking forward to that day and anticipating that day of our deaths? Are we placing before them, or are we exhibiting our anticipation of being in the presence of the Lord and being gathered up among our people? And I thought of this late this morning. I could really have summarized this in one, one question. Are we keeping our vows that we made at their baptisms? Well, that brings us to the final words of Joseph. After the funeral, the brothers begin to sweat. For some reason, probably more about them than about Joseph, they believe that the death of Jacob was going to open them up to severe trouble. They, they believe that Jacob's death would be the perfect opportunity for Joseph to finally exercise vengeance. They believe that he somehow was going to repay their evil with his own evil. So as was their custom, they came up with a plan, and they sent a messenger with some made-up story about Jacob commanding Joseph to forgive them, and we don't know why it bothered him, it doesn't say why it bothered him, but, but it bothered him to the point that he begins to weep. But when they come before him on, his hand, on their hands and knees and seeking mercy and pledging their servitude, Joseph reminded them of his forgiveness. I mentioned this back in November, but by the grace of God, Joseph was able to, to move on, right, from his past, and he was able to be present and, and look forward to the future. He was able to move past the, the pain and the, the betrayal of the sin that had been perpetrated against him. He had not forgotten what they had done. He had not excused what they had done. He didn't simply let them off the hook, but he had chosen to lay down his demands, had chosen to lay down his desires to personally avenge the wrong. He chose not to repay evil for evil, and he chose to pay the debt himself. And he said he could do so for three reasons here in the text. First, he said he understood that he wasn't God. It wasn't his place to be vengeful. Vengeance was the Lord's job. Secondly, he understood that God was sovereign and that his 
purposes would prevail. His brothers were merely instruments of Joseph's sanctification. And if he had issues with what they were doing, he needed to take those issues up with God and not with them. And then thirdly, he understood that God's purposes involved more than just him. Right? It, it, he wasn't the center of the universe. The Lord had worked all things, all things together for, for his good, but not just his good, but for the good of more people than he could count. Because God had preserved Joseph's life so he could preserve the lives of others. In the words of Ligon Duncan, God ordains and in his ordination he rules and overrules the evil of men and he turns that evil to his own purposes as a part of his decree. His providence is kind and purposeful. It is explicitly and necessarily comprehensive and not merely reactive. He is the one who is guiding and creating the situations in which his people find themselves and is doing it for their good and his own glory. And that remains the same. That, that, is, that was true for Joseph and it's true for us. And how, and how it led him to forgive, it should lead us to forgive as well. And again, I said this a month ago, the end, the end of November, but there's no limit to who we, we are to forgive and, and how often we're to forgive. There's, right, this story shows us, though, that it requires us to rest in the sovereignty and providence of God. Trusting in Him, in Him alone, because He is the only just judge, and He is the only one that can work in the, in the dark providences that we experience, and do so for our good. And so it's as we rest in Him that we're able to do what He's called us to do, right? And what have we been called to do? We've been called to keep no record of wrongs. We've been called to not be resentful. We've been called to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We who have been forgiven much are to forgive much. May each of us not only strive to do so, but to pray for one another toward that end. Well, in the last five verses of chapter 50, Moses tells us that Joseph remained in Egypt he turned 110, he lived to be 110, and he saw his great-grandchildren. Could also be his great-great-grandchildren, -grand -great the whole third generation thing always throws me. But he saw his grandchildren. And in the words of the author of Hebrews, we know he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but saw them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that he was a stranger in exile on the earth. He was seeking a homeland, a better heavenly country. And before he died, he told his brothers that God would be with them. Despite all that they had done, God would be with them. He believed God would keep his word. And he believed that one day, God was going to lead them out of Egypt. And he believed it so much because the promise, right, the promise had been made to, to Abraham. After 400 years in bondage, they would be let out. And that promise was also for Isaac, and it was also for Jacob. And it's now for the sons of Jacob. And he was so sure 
that they would be let out. That he said, I don't want you to take me to Canaan like you took dad, like we took dad. I want you to keep my bones. And I want you to wait. And I want my bones to be carried out when you're let out of Egypt. And I want to be buried in Canaan. He knew of the exodus to come. He believed in the exodus to come. And he wanted his coffin to be a visual, perpetual reminder of not only his faith, but of the promises that were theirs. He wanted them to see, every time they saw the coffin, he wanted them to think of what was ahead. And what do we know? We know that Moses carried out his bones. And we know that Joshua buried the bones in Shechem. The promises were kept. Joseph knew God was a promise maker and a promise keeper, and and that proved to be so. And that remains true today. While another year has passed, and a new one is beginning, I want to make an appeal of patience. An appeal of patience. The Lord Christ has said, I, surely, I am coming soon. And from our, from our vantage point, he's late. He's delayed. Something's keeping him. But as we've seen in our study of Genesis, God's plans cannot be thwarted by anything or anyone. They come to pass at the right time because they come at the appointed time. So the essence of living by faith is waiting on God. It's a life of persevering, which thankfully is a gift from Him. But our faith is sure because the object of our faith is sure. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. All of the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that they were clinging to, Paul says are yes and amen in him. And as we close our study, I want you to hear these words again from Richard Phillips. He says, Jesus is the saving child promised to Adam and Eve, whose atoning sacrifice crushed the head of Satan and delivered his people from sin and its judgment. Jesus is the true offspring promised to Abraham, Born not through a barren, but a virgin womb, so that through faith all the families of the earth may be blessed in Him. And Jesus is the Savior, sent by His heavenly Father to visit us in the bondage of corruption and the curse of death, that we might have an exodus into eternal life. Joseph's dying message proclaimed, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. In the course of God's appointed time, Jesus answered, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Beloved, may we faithfully wait for him in patience. Let's pray.
Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the Word with faith and love and meekness and readiness of mind, to meditate on it and to hide it in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen.